Exodus 35, verses 1 through 3, hear now the reading of God's most holy word. And that phrase is repeated each Lord's Day as I prepare to read Holy Scripture. And it is intended to encourage you to listen intentively to the word of God. We have before us the word of God. We need to revere it as such. We need to give our full and undivided attention to the reading of God's most holy word. Brothers and sisters, do not be distracted. Pay attention to the holy scriptures and to the preaching of it. Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done. But on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. Let us go now to Galatians chapter 3 and consider verses 1 through 14. Galatians 3, 1 through 14. The Apostle Paul, writing to Christians in this region, said, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. As it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Last Sunday, we took a little break from our expositional study of the book of Exodus, and I preached a sermon entitled, What is the Gospel? In that sermon, I told you that the word gospel means good news. The gospel of Jesus Christ is an announcement, therefore. It is the good news that forgiveness from sin And salvation is available through faith in Jesus Christ. But in that sermon, I did also try to convince you that the gospel is not a simple announcement, but rather a story about God's good creation, man's fall into sin, the redemption that Christ has earned, 
through His obedient life, sacrificial death, victorious resurrection. And it is also a story about the consummation of all things when He returns. If you wish to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that makes sense, you must, to one degree or another, tell the story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation in Christ Jesus. The story of God's good creation and man's fall into sin through the breaking of the covenant of works is the backstory that makes the story of our redemption in Christ Jesus comprehensible. Really, the good news of Jesus Christ, this, this good news that He lived and died for sinners, cannot be comprehended if we do not first tell the bad news of our fall into sin through Adam, our federal head, and our actual sins, which do deserve the wrath of God. The story of redemption in Jesus Christ can only be understood against that dark backdrop. And now I ask, how does this redemption which Christ has earned through His obedient life and sacrificial death come to benefit sinners? Do you understand the question? We are here saying that Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, earned redemption, accomplished redemption nearly 2,000 years ago. He lived a life of righteous obedience so that sinners might be clothed with His righteousness. He died in the place of sinners to atone for the sins of others and to bear the wrath of God in their place. This work has been accomplished. There is nothing more to do. It is finished. But here I am asking, how is this redemption which Christ has earned applied to sinners, even to those who live now 2,000 years after the fact? Answer, it is received by faith through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit works. What do I mean when I say as the Spirit works? Here I am talking about the fact that because we are dead in our sins, blind to the truth, at enmity with God, and bent towards evil, the Spirit of God must work upon fallen sinners inwardly if we are to turn from our sin and to God through faith in Jesus the Christ. The Spirit of God must work. He must give new life to the sinner. He must open blind eyes so that the sinner can perceive the truth of the gospel with the mind He must subdue the rebel sinner to make them submissive to the will of God. He must renew the sinner's heart so that he or she desires God and this gospel. We call this work of the Spirit regeneration. We call this work of the Spirit new birth. We call this effectual calling. And questions 32 through 34 of our catechism say it very well. How are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? Does that question sound familiar? It's the same one I just asked a moment ago. How do we come to to partake of this redemption that Christ has earned? Answer, we are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by His Holy Spirit. We come to have this redemption as ours. We come to be saved. We come to be forgiven as the Spirit applies what Christ has done to us. Christ did this work so long ago, and yet the Holy Spirit of God applies what Christ has done to us in time. And this is, a call, this is called effectual calling. How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ is question 33. 
The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So, so how does this go? The Spirit must work. And what does the Spirit do within us? He works faith within us. It is you who believe, and it is through this believing or through this faith that you receive the gift of salvation. But it is the Spirit who does it. It is the Spirit who enlivens us. It is the Spirit who enlightens our minds, frees us from this bondage that we are in. It is the Spirit who opens our eyes to see so that we might lay a hold of Christ and believe upon Him to the salvation of our souls. What is effectual calling is question 34. Here it is. Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, He does persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. So when I say that we come to be saved as the Spirit works, I am talking about this. I am talking about this effectual calling which the Scriptures so clearly and beautifully describe to us. When I say that the redemption that Christ has earned is applied to sinners when they receive it by faith through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit works. This is what I mean. The Spirit must work. The Spirit must call sinners inwardly. This is what Jesus meant when He said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. John 6.44 Jesus Himself said that. No one can, no one is able to come to Me unless the Father draws them. And we know from other passages of Scripture that the Father draws sinners to Himself by the working of the Holy Spirit. But the gospel must also be proclaimed. And that is our work. The preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the means that God uses to bring sinners to faith and repentance. This is why Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Romans 1.16. And a little later in Romans he says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and how will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You see, it is through the preaching of, or proclamation of the gospel that men and women are ordinarily saved. The gospel must be preached by us, and the Spirit must work inwardly upon the hearts of sinners if any are to come to benefit from this redemption that Christ has earned so long ago. But know this, though the Spirit must draw sinners, and though the gospel must be preached if men and women are to be saved, faith is the instrument whereby we lay a hold of Christ and the gift of the gospel that is freely offered. It is by believing in Christ that we come to receive the gift of salvation. It is by believing in Christ that we come to have as our own the redemption which Christ has earned and all of its benefits. How do you receive food into the body and benefit from all of the nutrients it contains? You, you know the answer to this. It is by the way of the mouth and through the process of chewing and the means of digestion. So you, you come to receive food and all of its nutrients 
in this way or by these means. You receive the food into your mouth, you chew and you digest it, and your body absorbs the the nutrients. Perhaps I could ask it another way. How do you receive a gift offered to you by a friend? Do you not receive it with the hand and then express gratitude with your lips? And so just as the mouth is the instrument by which we receive the blessing of food, and the hand is the instrument by which we receive a gift from a friend, faith in Christ is the instrument by which we receive salvation and all of the spiritual and eternal benefits that accompany it. Salvation is received by faith alone in Jesus Christ, and this is the gift of God, brothers and sisters. Listen to Paul in Galatians 2.16. Yet we know that a person is not justified, not saved, not forgiven, by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. Did you hear the words through and by in this passage repeated over and over again? These speak of the means or the conduit through which salvation is received. When you turn the faucet in your home on, water comes out. And how does that happen? How do you come to have the water in your glass or pot when you turn the faucet on and place the glass or the pot underneath it? It is through or by the pipes. And how do you come to have the salvation that Christ has accomplished so long ago with all of its various benefits in your soul? How do you come to have that? How do you come to receive that as your own It is received by faith. Faith is the conduit by which we receive the blessings that Christ has earned for us. Faith is the instrument by which we receive these things. And we know that faith, that is to say, the ability to believe, is itself a gift from God. That is what Paul says so clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through, there that word is again, through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. How is this redemption which Christ has earned received by sinners? Answer, it is received by faith, through the preaching of the gospel, and by the effectual calling of the Holy Spirit. Sinners come to be saved by Christ and forgiven all of their sins when they turn from their sins, believe in Christ, and trust in His works And even this ability to believe is a gift from God. Now, here is yet another question. Yes, we will eventually come to Exodus chapter 35. I'm getting there. I'm building towards it. Here is another question, though, and it's a very important question, one that perhaps you have not thought of before. How were sinners saved, forgiven, prior to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Do you understand the question that I'm asking now? I've asked the question, how do we come to benefit from the salvation that Christ has earned so long ago? This question is a little bit different. There were many, many people who lived prior to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. How did they come to be saved prior to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Ever since Christ lived, died, and rose again, sinners have been saved through faith, 
and by hearing the good news about what Christ had done as the Spirit works. But what about before that time? What about those who lived in the days of Abraham, some 2,000 years before Christ was born? And what about those who lived in the days of Moses, some 1,600 years before Christ was born? How were those people saved from their sins? Answer, in much the same way that sinners are saved after his life, death, burial, and resurrection. The scriptures are very clear that Abraham, along with everyone who lived in his era, was justified through faith by the hearing of the gospel and the working of the Holy Spirit. I want you to listen again to Galatians 3, 3 through 3-9 with this question in mind. How were people saved prior to the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Do you understand the, the issue that Paul is addressing here with the churches in this region? Some of them are claiming to have been justified by keeping the law. And Paul is saying, are, are you kidding me? How could you possibly be justified or saved or forgiven or made right before God by law-keeping? Uh, that's not what I taught you. You didn't begin that way. Are you now going to continue this way? This is the, the, the serious error that Paul is addressing. Some within the churches in this region began to think that they needed to keep the law in order to be made right with God. But he, Paul says, no, it is, it is by faith. But listen, he says, just as Abraham... When did Abraham live, friends? Long before Jesus the Messiah was ever born. So this is significant. He's going to now tell us about how Abraham and all who lived in his era were justified before God. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So Abraham, along with everyone who lived in his day, was made right before God, not by the works of the law, but by believing, that is to say, through faith, in the very same way that you and I are justified today, there is a very bad error uh, that is sometimes taught in churches today, and that is that salvation was earned differently in those days than it is received now. It's a terrible error, and it's so clearly refuted in the pages of Holy Scripture, this text being one of them. Paul here says that Abraham was made righteous, he was counted as righteous, through belief, that is to say, through faith. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. I'm continuing to quote Paul now. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. There's so much here in this passage. There's mention of the Spirit working in this passage. There's this insistence that Abraham was made right before God by believing in something. And what did Abraham believe in? The text explicitly says that it was the gospel that was preached to Abraham. Wrap your minds around that. We have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ about what he has done. The Spirit has worked upon our hearts and we have believed upon Christ. Well, something very similar happened to Abraham and to all who believed in his day. They heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Christ who was to come. They heard the gospel, the Spirit worked, and God gave them the gift of faith to the forgiveness of their sins. This is incredible. 
There is one difference, though, between how men and women were saved back then compared to how they are saved now after the Christ has come. The gospel that is preached after the life of Christ looks back, whereas the gospel that was preached before the life of Christ looked forward. I wonder if you could see the difference. The gospel that is preached ever since Christ rose from the dead looked back upon what Christ had done. So there was an announcement to be made. Here is what Christ has done for you, you see. But the gospel that was preached before the life of Christ looked forward. Here is what will be done for the forgiveness of your sins. Here is what will be done in order to accomplish redemption. But it is the same gospel, brothers and sisters. It's the same gospel. It's the same message proclaimed from a different vantage point. The gospel preached in the days of Adam, Abraham, Moses, and David said, Here is what the Lord will do. But the gospel that is preached after his life, death, burial, and resurrection says, Here is what the Lord has done. It is the same gospel but proclaimed from a different perspective. The gospel under the old covenant was delivered. As a promise, God will provide a Savior. God will send His Messiah to defeat the evil one, to overthrow His kingdom and His works, to set the captives free, to pay for sins, and to make all things new. The gospel under the new covenant is delivered as an announcement. The Savior of the world has come. He has paid for sins, etc. It is finished, we say. Under both the old covenant and the new, sinners are called to do the very same thing. Then... And now, what must sinners do to be saved? They must believe this gospel. They must turn from their sins and trust in this Messiah for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life everlasting. It is the same Messiah, brothers and sisters. But the details concerning His, perfect, his person and work were a mystery before He came. Please don't misunderstand that word. When I say that the details concerning his person and work were a mystery before he came, I do not mean to say that nothing was known of the Christ or what he would do, but that what was known concerning him was veiled. It was somewhat hidden. It wasn't exactly known who he would be or what he would do for the forgiveness of sins. But enough was known then that those who were called of God who heard this gospel, were able to lay a hold of it and to sink their teeth into it, as it were, and to trust in what God had promised to do. Those who lived before His first coming could see Him dimly through promises given to them. Now the veil has been lifted. We see Him clearly now, for He has come to accomplish the work the Father gave Him to do. As we continue on in our study of the book of Exodus... I will attempt to show you how the gospel of Jesus the Messiah was delivered even to those who lived in the days of Moses. You've probably heard me say in previous sermons that the gospel was delivered to them in the form of promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. I oftentimes string together those four words, and I do so quickly and uh, rarely with with definition, we're going to define them in just a moment. The gospel was delivered to those who lived before the life of Christ in the form of promises, prophecies, types, and shadows. We have 
about six chapters left in the book of Exodus. And I'm going to place strong emphasis upon this. I want you to see how the gospel was delivered to the people of Israel in the days of Moses and afterwards in the form of promises, prophecies, types, and especially shadows. I want you to see it. These are very important terms, and they're biblical terms. They're biblical terms. The word promise appears throughout the New Testament. It is often used to speak of the guarantees that God gave to Abraham and others concerning the Messiah he would bring into the world through his offspring to bless all the nations of the earth. The language of promise is found throughout the New Testament, but it is especially concentrated in Romans, in Galatians, Ephesians, and Hebrews. For example, Hebrews 11.17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. I will not take the time to explain that text in full, but here I simply want you to notice that it is said that Abraham received the promises. Uh, These promises that were given to him by God had to do with the accomplishment of our redemption through one of his offspring. It would not be Isaac, it would be another who would come a long time afterwards, Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. So promises were given to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. These same promises were entrusted to Israel in the days of Moses. They kept them, they held on to them and and, and kept them for us. These promises had to do with what God would do in the future uh, through this Messiah that He would send. Promises have to do with the future, don't they? If I promise to do something, I am giving you my guarantee that I will surely do it when... Uh, obviously it is this, in the future. In the future, I guarantee that I will do this or I will do that. That is how promises work. And according to 2 Corinthians 1.20, now I quote, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. Did you hear it? Paul is here considering all the promises of God that were made in Old Testament times. And what is he saying to the church in Corinth? He is saying, all of those promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that were entrusted to Israel, all of those promises even that were made to Adam shortly after he fell into sin concerning uh, the one who would arise from the seed of the woman and crush the serpent's head. Um, All of those promises, who do they land on? Who do they find their yes in? Who do they find their fulfillment in? Paul says it is in Christ that all of these promises of God find their yes in. In addition to these precious and very great promises made to Adam, Abraham, and entrusted to Israel, the gospel of Jesus Christ was also communicated through prophecies. And here I am thinking of those declarations that were made by God to and through the prophets of old concerning the coming Messiah. Moses himself spoke to Israel saying, The Lord your God will rise up for you, a prophet like me, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. Indeed, there were many prophets who arose within and ministered to Israel. 
Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they spoke of many things, one of them being the coming Messiah. But when Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, it is to him you shall listen. It had ultimate fulfillment in Christ himself. This was a prophecy concerning the coming Messiah. He was a prophet like no other, being the eternal word of God come in the flesh. You may see John 1, 21, 25, 45, also Acts 3, 22, and 7, 37, to see that this word from Moses was in fact about Jesus. The Old Testament is filled with prophecies concerning the Messiah who would eventually come from their vantage point. So then the good news of Jesus Christ was delivered to those who lived prior to the life of Christ in the form of promises and prophecies. They're similar things, but a little bit different. Let us also consider the revelation of the gospel through types. Through types. Types are people, places, events, and institutions that have a prophetic, forward-looking quality to them. In Romans 5.14, Paul says that Adam himself, the first man, was a type of Christ. I told you these are biblical terms. They are. The scriptures speak of promises and prophecies and types. Adam was said to have been a type of Christ. Adam and Christ share this in common. They both were appointed to live as representatives for others. We may also say that Isaac, the only begotten son of Abraham, was a type of Christ. You understand what I'm referring to here. I'm referring to that episode wherein Abraham takes his only begotten son, Isaac, up onto the mountain and offers him up there, but the Lord provides a substitute. It, 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 there's typology there. There's, a, there's this event and these people, Abraham and Isaac, um, this, this whole episode involving them uh, had a prophetic, forward-looking a quality to it. It was typological. It, it, it gave a, an idea or a picture of what the Lord would do to accomplish our redemption through Abraham's son, his seed. Not Isaac, but Jesus, the Messiah. The Hebrews eleven seventeen passage that was read a moment ago suggests this. Just as Abraham offered Isaac upon the altar and received him back from the dead, metaphorically speaking, so too God the Father offered up His eternally begotten Son to die as a substitute for others and to raise um, from the dead in victory. So, the Old Testament is filled with types. With types. Did I not also tell you in our study of the book of Exodus that the whole Exodus event was a type of the salvation that Christ would work? He has redeemed us from bondage, not to Egypt, but to something greater. He has redeemed us from bondage to, to sin and death in the kingdom of the evil one. We sojourn with Him now. He will lead us into the promised land. It's all typological. Do you understand what I'm saying here? And the gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed in this. Not with words, but actually through historical people and historical events, you see. The gospel of Jesus Christ was put on display, as it were, through these things. So we have promises, we have prophecies, we also have types. Now what about shadows? What about shadows? Shadows are similar to types. 
But it seems that the word is used more exclusively to refer to those aspects of the law given to Israel through Moses, which pointed forward to the coming Messiah and to his work. Perhaps at this point you could see, I see where Pastor is going with this. Uh, We're eventually going to come to the law of Moses and to consider the tabernacle that was given to them. And what I will say to you is that uh, the gospel was revealed in these things in a shadowy way. Listen to Colossians 2, 16 through 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbaths is the proper interpretation of this Greek word. Paul here is thinking of all of these things that were revealed and given to Israel through Moses under the Old Covenant. Uh, Israel was to abstain from certain foods. Drink offerings were to be offered up. They were to observe festivals, new moons, and Sabbath days that accompanied their religious calendar. Paul says, let no one judge you in regard to these things. You're not bound to keep them. Here is the part I want you to hear. Which are a shadow of things to come. When Paul thought of the Old Testament and all of those laws that were given to Old Covenant Israel to govern their worship, he saw them as shadows which pointed forward to good things to come. But the substance is of Christ, Paul says. This is marvelous to consider. The same word is also used in this way in Hebrews 8.5 and 10.1. Hebrews 8.5 says... Now, if Christ were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests, he's here thinking of the priests of the Old Covenant, who offer gifts according to the law, the law of Moses. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, that is the tabernacle which we are about to consider, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern That was shown to you on the mountain. Huh. Isn't that interesting? So then, the old covenant tabernacle, its priesthood, all of the accoutrements, all of the worship that took place there, the sacrificial system itself, is here called by Paul a shadow of what? Heavenly things. So this here on earth, the tabernacle of the old covenant, was meant Uh, to to point to realities that are in heaven. A shadow was cast from heaven down to earth in the tabernacle. And Hebrews 10.11 says, For since the law, the law of Moses, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. The idea here is a little different. Uh, Here the apostle I believe it is Paul, is saying to us that the law that was given to Israel in the days of Moses was a shadow of something to come. Those animal sacrifices there could not really wash away sins and cleanse people before God for all eternity. But they did point forward to one who would do that, namely Christ the Lord, to use the the language of Paul in Colossians. The substance is Christ. The substance is Christ. That's what these New Testament texts mean. They clarify that when God gave Israel the law through Moses, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial laws which regulated Israel's worship, they were were designed to indicate truths about God in heaven 
and truths about the Christ who was to come. They were shadows of realities in heaven. They were shadows of realities yet future, realities having to do with the Messiah and the accomplishment of his work. I'm sure you understand how shadows work. When light hits something of substance like your body or a tree or a pulpit, it casts a shadow. The shadow itself is not the material thing, but the shadow can tell us something about the material thing. The shadow is an image of the material thing. If the only thing I had view of was the shadow, I could not fully appreciate the material thing, but I could know some truths about it. You understand? I could know truths about you if I were to only look at your shadow cast on the ground. But I would learn so much more about you if I were given the ability to just look at you and not your shadow only. And what the scriptures are telling us is that this was the case with the law that was given to Moses in its entirety. This was especially the case with the tabernacle and all of the worship that took place there. That tabernacle was designed by God and built by Israel in obedience to the command of God to function in a shadowy way so that this earthly tent with all of its accoutrements and with its priesthood and with all of the sacrifices that were offered up there generation after generation, this tabernacle was meant to function as a shadow to tell the people of God in that era Truth about God in heaven and about the Christ who was to come. The substance was Christ. But Christ cast his shadow backwards upon the history of redemption so that those who lived prior to his life, death, burial, and resurrection might know something about him. You see, these shadows revealed the truth about Christ and the gospel in a mysterious way, in a shadowy way, in a symbolic way. It's marvelous to consider, brothers and sisters, and it's important for us to see, though we live under the New Covenant era, it is still very important for us to see. When Paul wrote to Christians living after the life of Christ, saying, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of the good things to come, but the substance of Christ. Uh, this is what he meant. Christ is the substance Yes, He lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago. He came at a certain moment in the fullness of time to do His work. But there He stands as the great figure, the central figure in the history of redemption. And He is the substance. Shadows concerning His person and work were cast backwards into the Old Covenant era, era through the law that was given to Moses. The festivals, the new moons, the Sabbaths of which Paul speak were those holy days that Israel was commanded to keep under the Old Covenant. For example, the Passover, the Day of Atonement, and all of the other Sabbath or rest days associated with these holy days. These were a shadow of the good things to come. So then these holy days of Old Covenant Israel were forward pointing. They were a shadowy picture of something future And what was that future thing? Paul says the substances of Christ. Jesus Christ was the substantial thing whose shadow was cast backwards into the Old Covenant. Brothers and sisters, I present this teaching to you regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ 
being proclaimed to those who lived prior to the life of Christ in these forms of promises, prophecies, types, and shadows because you cannot properly read the Old Testament or the New Testament apart from these truths. These are not hidden truths. These are not speculative truths. These are revealed truths. The language of prophecies, promises, types, and shadows is found in the New Testament, and they are crucial to a proper understanding of the Holy Scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ was proclaimed back then. It was not an announcement of what Christ had done, for He had not yet come to accomplish our redemption, but of what He would do for the redemption of His people and the forgiveness of their sins. Now, as we come to Exodus, and we continue on in our study of the book of Exodus, my intention is to show you how the gospel was put on display in the tabernacle of Old Covenant Israel. Yes, the people of Israel did really worship there. Yes, the people were really purified there, not in the soul, but in the flesh. And yes, the priests did really intercede between Israel and Yahweh, and His presence was manifest in that place. But the tabernacle did also point to the future, to Christ and to His finished work. It was a shadow of the good things to come. The substance was Christ. And so in the weeks to come, I will talk about the good news of all of these things. I think, uh, this is my plan, that the sermons will all have this title, The Good News of the Tabernacle, The Good News of the Ark, the Table, and the Lampstand, The Good News of the Altar of Incense, and the Altar of Burnt Sacrifices, and so on, something like that. We are going to take a step back from the details of the text and consider how these These things, the tabernacle itself and all of its furnishings, the priesthood too, how they pointed forward to the work that Christ would do. We've considered these things in detail earlier in our study of the book of Exodus. Now we will step back and say, how do these things reveal truths about Jesus the Christ and the work that He would one day do? The repetition of the book of Exodus concerning the instructions given for the building of the tabernacle and then the actual building of the tabernacle gives us the opportunity to consider the text in both of these ways. First, up close and in detail, and then second, from afar back and in a general way. But before we consider the tabernacle, its furnishings, its priesthood, and its filling with the glory of God, let us consider the Sabbath. Let us consider the Sabbath. In Exodus 35, 1-3, the people of Israel are commanded yet again, to observe the Sabbath day. I'll read the text once more. Verse 1, Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel and said to them, These are the things that the Lord has commanded you to do. Six days work shall be done, but on the seventh day you shall have a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. When we read that Moses assembled all the congregation of the people of Israel, we are to remember that the Lord had graciously reinstituted the covenant that He had made with them at Sinai, which they had already broken by their corporate idolatry. Moses assembled them to recommission them to move forward with the building of the tabernacle according to the design that was shown to them on the mountain. The very first thing that Moses commands as he 
recommissions them to build the tabernacle is that the people observe the Sabbath day. Six days were to be devoted to work. The seventh day was to be a day of holy rest. This even applied to the work of building the tabernacle. Also, the tabernacle and the Sabbath day were intimately related things. For the people were to worship corporately at the tabernacle on the Sabbath day. It was a day for assembling together. It was a day for rest. It was a day for worship. We should not be surprised, therefore, to see the instructions for the building of the tabernacle and the command to observe the Sabbath day closely related to one another. If the tabernacle was to be properly used, the Sabbath day would need to be observed. And if the Sabbath day was to be properly observed, the tabernacle would be appropriately used. There is a connection between these two things. The Sabbath day is here called a day of solemn rest, a day holy to the Lord. This reminds us that it is a day that is unique from all of the the other days. It is a day for assembling together. It is a day for rest from common labor. It is a day for worship. With the people of God. And then in verse 3, we find this law whoever does any work on it shall be put to death, and you shall kindle no fire in all your dwelling places on the Sabbath day. In Old Covenant Israel, the civil penalty for Sabbath breaking was death. The people of Israel were not even to kindle a fire in their dwelling places on the Sabbath day. This command takes us back to the first mention of the Sabbath in the book of Exodus when it, is, when it was said. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil. And all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. That is Exodus 16, 23. I've said a lot about the Sabbath in previous sermons. Today, I wish to draw your attention to the gospel of the Sabbath. Let us consider the gospel of the Sabbath. First, let me explain what I do not mean by the phrase. One, I do not mean that men and women can be justified before God through Sabbath keeping. I I will simply cite Galatians 2.16 to refute that idea. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Sabbath keeping cannot save you. That is not what I am saying. Two, I am not denying the strictness of the law of the Sabbath under Old Mosaic Covenant. The penalty for Sabbath breakers was death. Indeed, the law was harsh. It was a harsh schoolmaster, a strict disciplinarian for Israel under the Old Covenant. So what do I mean when I speak of the gospel of the Sabbath? One, I wish to emphasize that the Sabbath day was a gift to Israel. Though the law concerning Sabbath breaking was harsh, we must still see it as a gift to Israel. Indeed, it was a gift for all of humanity. And the people of God in every era ought to see it as such. It is a day to cease from common labor. It is a day to worship God and to assemble with the people of God. It is a day to be refreshed in God, in the worship of God and in the contemplation of His glorious name. The Sabbath was a gift for Israel. It was something for them to enjoy. It was something for them to delight in, just as it is for us today. Two, I want for you to see the good news communicated by the Sabbath day. There is good news communicated by the presence of the Sabbath day. This ongoing practice of Sabbath keeping screams, screams good news. 
in order to see the good news. We must first understand what the Sabbath signified from the beginning. The Sabbath day was not first given to Israel, but to Adam in the garden even before sin entered the world. It communicated to Adam that through his faithful work, he would enter into eternal rest in the presence of God. That is what the Sabbath originally communicated to Adam. Adam, work, days 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and enter into rest, day 7. Adam, keep the covenant. Adam, protect the garden, expand its borders, fill it with your posterity. Do this faithfully, do this work faithfully, so that you, Adam, might enter into eternal rest. The Sabbath in the beginning signified something very similar to what the tree of life signified. Adam, obey God, keep the covenant, and after you pass this period of testing, eat of the tree of life. And the tree of life was a symbol of what? Life eternal. Life in the presence of the glory of God. So Adam was given the sign of the tree of life. He was also given the Sabbath day. He was to imitate his maker in this, working for six days and resting on the seventh. This pattern, six and one, six and one, was to be observed by him. But he was given this sign in order to invite him to something. Adam, work, and then enter in to rest. Once he passed the test, he would enter, have entered into God's eternal rest. Now we know that Adam broke the covenant of works. We know that all of the curses of that covenant fell on him. He entered into a state of death, a state of sin and misery. And not only did they fall on him, but on all who descended from him. That is to say, humanity. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden and they were barred from the tree of life. All of Adam's children were born outside of Eden and under the curses of that broken covenant of works. All of this is bad news. The question is this, is there good news? Answer, yes, there is good news. Shortly after the fall, God promised to send a Savior. One who would be born of the woman who would bruise the serpent's head. And as you have learned today, this good news was not only communicated in the form of promise, but also through prophecies, types, and shadows. And we could spend a very long time talking about all of the promises, prophecies, types, and shadows through which the good news of Jesus Christ was communicated from the days of Adam to the days of Christ. Indeed, Christ taught His disciples that the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms all found their fulfillment in Him, Luke 24, 44. But today I want you to consider the way in which the continued presence of the Sabbath day communicated good news. Think with me, brothers and sisters. If there was now no hope for humanity to enter into God's eternal rest, after Adam, our federal head, fell into sin, then there would be no Sabbath keeping in the world after the fall. For... The observance of the Sabbath day does not only benefit the people of God week after week in a spiritual sense, it also communicates something to us about our future hope. It told Adam 
that through his faithful obedience to God's command in the garden, he would enter into rest. And when God's people continued to observe the seventh day Sabbath from Adam to Moses, from Adam to Moses, it communicated good news. Entering into the thing of which the Sabbath was a sign was still a possibility. Do you see the good news of the Sabbath, brothers and sisters? If there was no hope of entering into this rest, which the Sabbath signified, then there would be no Sabbath keeping in the world after man's fall into sin. But the fact that the Sabbath continued to be observed by the people of God after man's fall into sin, that preached the gospel. Good news was communicated there. There still is hope that you will have a way to enter into the thing the Sabbath signified, namely the eternal rest of God. Now, not all agree that the Sabbath was observed by God's people from Adam to Moses. I believe it was, and I have put Exodus 16 before you as evidence of this. The Sabbath was observed prior to the giving of the Ten Commandments, the fourth of which says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Exodus 20, verse 8. But it is clear and beyond all dispute that in the days of Moses, when God entered into a special covenant with the people of Israel at Sinai, He commanded His people to keep the Sabbath day holy. It has been commanded over and over and over again in Exodus. Have you noticed that? Notice the repetition over and over and over again. The Lord commands Israel to keep the Sabbath. Those who violated the Sabbath in Old Covenant Israel were even to be put to death. So serious was this thing that the penalty for breaking the Sabbath was death in Old Covenant Israel. What did this communicate to Israel and through them to the world? That is my question. What did this practice of Sabbath keeping communicate to Israel and through them to the world. It communicated that God was doing something in and through Israel that would result in eternal rest. I hope that you're able to picture this, brothers and sisters. Through obedience, there would come rest. Through obedience, there would come rest. This is what the seventh day Sabbath signified. Through obedience and work, one, two, three, four, five, six, there would come rest in the future on day seven. The question now is this whose obedience and what rest? Whose obedience and what rest? First, whose obedience would bring about the rest? It should be clear to all that it would not be Israel's obedience. For as soon as this covenant of works was made with them at Sinai, they, like their father Adam, broke the covenant through their corporate idolatry. Instead of listening to the voice of God, Aaron, the priest of Israel, listened to the voice of the people and led them into idolatry. Whose obedience would lead to rest? If we are following the storyline of Genesis and Exodus, we know that it will not be Abraham's obedience, it will not be Moses' obedience, it will not be Israel's obedience. It will be the obedience of the Messiah whom the Lord promised to bring into the world through Israel to bless all nations. Through obedience, we will enter into rest. Whose obedience? It has to be the obedience of the Messiah, the promised one. And what rest did the seventh day Old Covenant Sabbath signify? What rest? Did it signify the rest that the people of Israel would enjoy in Canaan once they took full possession of the land that was promised to them? Is that what this was about? Canaan? 
the promised land, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Or did it signify the rest that Israel would enjoy under King David and the kings that would descend from him after the kingdom is fully established? Partially, yes, but certainly not fully. The book of Hebrews makes this very clear in chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, For if Joshua had given them rest, remember Joshua is the one who led them into Canaan. If Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. That is Hebrews 4, 8. What is, what is the writer to the Hebrews' point here? He's saying that this Sabbath day, the Sabbath, was not fulfilled when Israel entered into Canaan to have it as their own. The rest that they enjoyed in that land, though it was a real kind of rest in that land that was promised to them, it was not the ultimate rest of which the Sabbath is a sign. Yes, Israel was given a type of rest through Joshua and even through David, but the rest, that, type of, that, that rest was only a type. The weekly Sabbath day signifies something much, much greater than rest on earth, rest in Canaan. From the beginning, the seventh day Sabbath has signified eternal rest in the new heavens and new earth. Do not forget that. That is the rest that was offered to Adam in the garden. I wonder if you can see it, brothers and sisters. I keep asking you if you can. I hope that you're focused now. The presence of the weekly seventh-day Sabbath in the world, from the fall of Adam into sin, to the resurrection of Christ, proclaimed the gospel of Jesus Christ in a shadowy, symbolic way. As the cycle of six days of work followed by one day of rest repeated in the world from Adam to Christ, it proclaimed something. And what did the Sabbath proclaim? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created in six days and rested on the seventh as a pattern for us. When He created, everything was good, very good, but man fell into sin. Here is the good news. The hope of entering into the eternal rest that was offered to Adam but forfeited by him remains. Therefore, the practice of Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God. That is what the presence of the Sabbath day communicated to the people of God and to all nations from Adam until Christ. It communicated the story of creation, fall, and the hope of redemption through Jesus the Christ, the only mediator between God and man, the second Adam. The seventh-day Sabbath did not find its fulfillment in Moses, in Joshua, in David, nor in the victories that God worked through them. The seventh-day Sabbath found its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the mediator and federal head of the covenant of grace, the seed of the woman who has bruised the serpent's head. Jesus Christ obeyed the Father perfectly and perpetually. He did the work that the Father gave Him to do. He finished that work, the work that was given to Him in the covenant of redemption. He lived for those given to Him by the Father. He died for these and rose again for these to reconcile them to the Father. And having accomplished his work, what did He do? He rose from the dead, He ascended into glory, and He sat down at the right hand of the Father. In other words, Christ has entered into His rest. And we find our rest in Him. Can you see that the seventh day Sabbath, which was observed in the world from Adam to Christ, proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ. It did so in a shadowy and symbolic way. It proclaimed that the promised Messiah would earn the eternal rest that was offered to Adam but lost. He would do the work that God gave him to do. 
He would enter into rest as his reward, and he will bring all who have faith in him into that rest in the new heavens and earth which he has served, which he has earned. I have one last question. Does the practice of Sabbath keeping remain for the people of God today? Yes, indeed, it does. Why? The answer is really quite simple. I could present passages of Scripture to you from the New Testament to prove uh, that it remains. It is called, called the Lord's Day. It is the Christian Sabbath. But why does it remain? Simply this. It is because the thing that the Sabbath has always signified, namely eternal rest in the presence of God in the new heavens and new earth, is not here yet. According to Hebrews 4, it is because we have not yet entered the fullness of that rest, it is because we have not yet entered into eternal rest that the practice of Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God. Hebrews 4 says it explicitly. But do not miss this very important point. We do not observe the Sabbath day on the seventh day But on the first day of the week, it is the Lord's day. It is the day on which Christ was raised from the dead. You see, whereas the seventh day Sabbath reminded the people of God of the original creation, of Adam's fall into sin, his failure to enter into rest, and the hope that our rest would one day be earned by the Messiah, you see, in the future, day seven, at the end of the week, The first day Sabbath reminds us of the original creation of Adam's fall into sin and of the fact that Jesus Christ, the the Messiah, the second Adam, has finished the work of our redemption and has entered into his rest. This is why the Sabbath day has been moved from the seventh day to the first because an advancement has been made in the accomplishment of our redemption. Christ came, He died, He rose again, and He has entered into His rest. We rest in Him now, and we await the consummation of all things. Do you understand this? It is very important that the people of God honor the Lord's Day Sabbath on the first day of the week, because the first day of the week proclaims this message. Our, accomplish, our redemption has been accomplished. It is finished. The Christ has come. We rest in Him now, because He has earned our rest, and we work out of gratitude for what He has done. You can see then that the Sabbath day preached the gospel to those who lived prior to the life of Christ in a shadowy, mysterious, and symbolic way. But the Lord's Day Sabbath, the Christian Sabbath, the first day Sabbath, still preaches the gospel, brothers and sisters. It does not preach it in a shadowy way for the substance which was once cast, which once cast the shadow back into the history of redemption has come. The substance is Christ. We see him clearly now. And so when we honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, we remember that Jesus Christ lived for his people, died for his people, rose for his people, and ascended for his people. And by this finished work of his, he has inaugurated a new creation. The old Sabbath reminded the worshiper of the original creation. The new Sabbath reminds us of the original creation and of the new. That new creation is here now in an inaugurated sense. It will be here in full and consummate form when Christ returns. 
Until that day, brothers and sisters, until that day when Christ returns and we enter into the rest of which the Sabbath is a sign, a Sabbath keeping remains for the people of God. And in this, the good news of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. How merciful you have been to provide a Savior for sinners. We thank you that you determined to save us and even announce this good news to those who lived before his life and to those of us now who live afterwards. I pray, O oh God, that you would work mightily amongst us, that the gospel would be preached amongst us and by us, that the Spirit of God would work powerfully, that you would give the gift of faith. O oh Lord, call sinners to faith and to repentance, I pray. I pray that you would strengthen those who believe. And for those who do believe in Christ, I pray that you would make us faithful to honor the Lord's Day Sabbath, that we would be very much mindful of all that it signifies, that we would be refreshed on this day, that we would be strengthened on this day, that we would be purified, and that, O oh God, you would be highly exalted. Work in and amongst us, O oh Lord, to make us faithful as your people, whom you have redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus, the Messiah, the second Adam, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. May we be found in him on the last day. In his name we pray. Amen.